And Pastor Tom, so glad to be here with you this morning. Um, if we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you after the service, so please do hunt me down. Uh, today we are finishing up our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called On the Mount, where Jesus did a variety of teachings. Now we are coming to the end of that, and so to really understand what's happening at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we need to go back to the front of the Sermon on the Mount and see what was going on there. But you know, to understand what's going on at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we really need to look back at the first four chapters of Matthew. But if we're going to understand what's going on in the first four chapters of Matthew, we're going to need to look at how the Old Testament ended. And to understand how the Old Testament ended, we're going to need to take a look at the middle of the New Testament. And we're not going any further than that. Okay, we are going to go back to the middle of the Old Testament as we start to set up everything that's happening so we really appreciate more what's going on at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's start with the middle of the Old Testament. We have a nation of Israel, and they are being ruled by judges, and things really aren't going well. In fact, they go well for a while, and then they don't, and then they do, and then they don't. A whole lot of repenting that ends up going right back and doing the same thing. So eventually, they get to the point where they say, you know what, we need to be like our neighbors. We need a king. We need to get this kingdom thing going, and we need a king. And so they pleaded with God to give them a king. Now God said, you know, having a king, that's a bad idea. And Israel responded, I'm sure, well, how bad could it really be? Give us a king anyway. And so God did give them a king, gave them King Saul, and that did not go well. And so then God raised up somebody else, David, a man after his own heart. So that looks pretty good. We've got a king here who's doing the righteous thing. And in fact, he even gets a promise from the Lord that he'll have a king sitting on his throne from his line, and he's going to sit on that throne forever. Wow, this looks great. We're going to have a kingdom, and it's going to go on forever. But after four, about, four more, about 400 years of history or so, we realize that this has ended in a disaster. Uh, things are so bad that God says, you know what, we're, we're just done. I'm going to bring some people in, they're going to conquer you, they're going to take you off into Babylonia, and you're going to be without a king and without a kingdom. And so that's basically where we end up the Old Testament. The hopes of a king, the desire for a kingdom, and there's no king. Now what? Several hundred years of going, now what? We're supposed to be having this king that sits on a throne forever. There, there's no kingdom. There's no, not going to be any king. So what's next? So that's then the setting for Matthew as he starts to write his gospel because he's saying, here comes the king. Interesting, before the kingdom really gets established, but here comes the king. So in the opening chapters of Matthew, he points out, hey, here comes our king. First of all, he starts with the genealogy to show that Jesus is, in fact, the descendant of David. Then he goes on to tell about how God sent an angel to Joseph, demonstrating, letting him know, it's okay that your wife is already pregnant, she has the Son of God, it'll be okay. Then he goes on to show how this Jesus is the fulfillment of a variety of prophecies, especially the prophecy that talks about God with us, and that he really is coming to earth here, and he's going to be the king. Then he goes on to talk about the wise men, and how that they came looking for him who has been born king of the Jews. 
Then he even continues on more at the baptism of Jesus. He recounts for us the story of God actually audibly saying to the people who are there, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And if that's not enough proof then that Jesus being the son of God, he even brings in Satan. You may recall that Jesus is out being tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and Satan is coming and asking him a question, you know, if you're the son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Interesting word if in Greek, there are actually two words for if. One of them you use when what you're saying is not certain, and a different one that you use when it is certain. So essentially, Satan is saying, since you are the son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? So even Satan is acknowledging Jesus to be the Son of God. So it's after these four chapters of buildup, then we get dropped into Jesus' ministry, and we start with this Sermon on the Mount. So let's take a look at how the Sermon on the Mount gets started. Because now we are moving away from here comes the king to here comes the kingdom. What is this like? So let's look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a hillside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, there it is. Jesus is jumping right into, here comes this kingdom of heaven, and who's going to be there? But there's a twist already, right at the very beginning. He's talking about this really great kingdom, and this kingdom, he says, is for the poor in spirit, not the rich in spirit. Really? Don't kingdoms usually grow by strength, not by weakness? But apparently Jesus' kingdom is for those who are at the end of their rope, at the end of their spiritual, emotional, and material rope. That's not what we would have expected. That's interesting. Let's go on to the next verse. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This too seems backwards. I mean, when we say, well, aren't you blessed? What just happened? Something good. Something great. Or maybe we'll say, oh, God's been good. And it's because he just did something that was very favorable to us. I mean, would you walk up to somebody who's sitting on the bench there and crying and say, you are blessed because you mourn? That's different. What's going on there? Not what we would have expected. Interesting. Jesus continues, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled How many of us are truly hungering and thirsting for righteousness? I mean, we may say that, but when we get weary, or it gets hard, or we get impatient, don't we compromise? Oh yeah, I want righteousness, but this is hard, so I'm going to compromise. We'll do something like that, then maybe we'll console ourselves by saying, well, you know, nobody's perfect. Or maybe we'll justify ourselves, thinking that, well, you know, we've done more good than bad, so it's, it's close enough. Or maybe we'll even point out to God, well, I, I know I messed up, but oh, I'm not as bad as that person. But that's not what Jesus' kingdom is like. Jesus' standards are awfully high. 
interesting. Then Jesus goes on, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. How many times have we seen hurting people say that I need justice, and when I get justice, then I will have peace and hope and healing. But Jesus says quite the opposite. He says that it's the merciful who are blessed, not the avenged. This isn't what we would have expected. Interesting. Jesus continues, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming is really different. Seeing God, is that really possible? I mean, we think back with the, with the disciples back in their day, and they have the priest, and how many of them get to go into the Holy of Holies? Only one, only one day out of the year. 363 other days, except in leap year, nobody's seeing God. Even you know, the priests aren't seeing God. Just once per year. And now Jesus is saying, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. More than once? Even us commoners, our non-clergy? What kind of kingdom is this? Interesting. Jesus continues, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. How can it be that peacekeepers are considered blessed? Aren't they the ones that usually end up having to compromise, do all this giving? Aren't they the ones that tend to get run over, overpowered? But Jesus calls them the blessed ones. Interesting. And then Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that doesn't sound like fun. In fact, that really doesn't sound much like a, a, a kingdom. Shouldn't kingdoms be winning? And Jesus says, my kingdom is losing or getting persecuted. That doesn't sound like what a kingdom should be about. Jesus' Jesus's kingdom is a place of righteousness and yet there's all this suffering going on? What is going on? What kind of king is Jesus? What kind of kingdom is going on here? None of this is what we would have expected. Interesting. So now that's how the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount finishes. Now we're going to move to the end. The rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we start looking at who's in the kingdom and who is not. So let's take a look at chapter 7, and we'll begin in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus goes on, moves on from describing what the kingdom is like to who will be in the kingdom that he is establishing and who will not. Now, Jesus uses a metaphor here of two paths. We've got two gates which have two paths going from them. And now, on one hand, this metaphor makes perfect sense to his listeners. They're familiar with two paths. And they're familiar that one path will lead to paradise and one will lead to hell. This is nothing new. Similarly, they're also familiar with the concept of 
the right way being difficult and hard, but it leads to eternal blessing. So there's no really big surprise here. But on the other hand, the way he uses this metaphor, it does cause some concern. They would be caught off guard. First of all, they're saying that Jesus, uh, Jesus is saying that before them there are two choices, and they're going to need to choose which way they are going to go. Now, the listeners are probably asking themselves, why do I need to choose? Aren't I already on the right road? I'm Jewish. I believe in God. We go to the temple. We sacrifice. We follow the rules. We follow the laws. I'm here with you right now, Jesus. Aren't I already in your kingdom? So the need to choose, interesting and rather unsettling. Similarly, the other unsettling piece is that Jesus has pointed out that those who find this path are few. Interesting, not just the number of people who go through it, but those who actually find it is a small number. And again, imagine the listeners are going, really? How does this work? How can you say only a few people are going to find it? Look at all of us. We found you. This is it, right? And if you keep up with all these miracles, there's going to be tons more people that know about you. How can you say that only a few are going to find your kingdom? Or are you suggesting that I haven't found you? Even though I'm here, I haven't found you. Weird. Indeed, the Sermon on the Mount has taken a significant change in direction and tone. I think that it is safe to say that anyone and everyone who has been tracking with Jesus up to this point is now in serious thinking mode. Some of the thoughts flying around might be some of these. Who is this guy, and why is he questioning our faith in God? What is this guy asking of me? These teachings seem to fly in the face of everything that we've been taught. I like this guy. He's questioning some of the things that our harsh leaders have been teaching us. I wonder what will happen when the scribes and Pharisees hear about this. I feel like I'm being called to make a choice, but I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. As the people ponder, whatever it is that they are pondering, Jesus continues. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus is getting very pointed at this point. There's a broad gate and path, and there's a narrow gate and path. There's choosing that much happen. There are false prophets that are going to find themselves not on the right path. There are false prophets out there trying to direct people towards the, the broad path. But how can you tell the difference between the two? 
They look so similar so often. And Jesus answered simply, fruit check. Look at what's going on in their lives. They may be teaching the right thing, but what is their life looking like? In fact, later on, Jesus will say that kind of thing directly. He says he will tell the people who are listening, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Their life tells a different story. When their walk doesn't match the talk, turn away. I imagine that with this teaching of Jesus, the tension is really starting to build. The differences between Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of, shall we call it, the scribes and the Pharisees, those kingdoms are very different. On the other hand, I imagine that at least some of the people are doing a fruit check of their own lives. I imagine they may be thinking something like, I need to be poor in spirit, but I'd rather be rich in spirit. I know I'm supposed to mourn, but wow, I would much rather be comforted. Oh, I know I need to be meek, but I'd really rather be important and powerful. I know I'm supposed to be righteous all the time, but that is just not happening. I know I need to be merciful, but I'd rather be on the receiving end than giving it. Pure in heart, that would be great but not happening here. I know I should be a peacemaker, but I prefer to win, whatever the cost. Accepting of persecution? Oh, I'd much rather avoid it. And then there's all the other stuff. Being more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees? How does that happen? Not telling lies, even itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny ones? Loving your enemies, praying for them, not worrying, not judging. Am I a bad tree? As the people ponder, Jesus continues, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus drives the stake down even further. He comes right out and says, these false prophets are headed to hell. There are religious leaders who are just downright evil. Wow. Who is going to be in the kingdom? This must have sent their minds reeling. They've just learned that just because you say Jesus is Lord doesn't mean that he actually is. They just learned that doing miracles does not grant you a place in God's kingdom. They just learned that it's possible to be a religious leader and not be known by God. Really? God's omniscient. Doesn't he know everybody? Perhaps he's talking about a different kind of knowing. It's getting very serious with these three teachings of Jesus about the narrow gate, about doing fruit checks, and being known by Jesus. He's talking about his kingdom. Who's going to be a part of it and who's not going to be a part of it? 
And he's making it quite clear that there won't be as many people in his kingdom as they think there will. Again, I imagine the reflective people in the crowd are full of questions. While they may be liking what Jesus says as he talks about their harsh leaders not being included in Jesus' kingdom, they still have questions. Perhaps the biggest one is, does Jesus know me? I know that he knows about me, he can see me right here, but that doesn't seem to be enough. He knows about the scribes and Pharisees, but he seems to be saying he will declare to at least some of them on Judgment Day, I never knew you. Does Jesus know me? As the people are pondering what he has just said, Jesus moves on to conclude the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. At first glance, it may appear that Jesus is now promoting good works in order to get into his kingdom. But if we keep this teaching in the context of everything that he has just said, that couldn't be any further from the truth. Jesus' condemnation of people who say, Lord, Lord, and act differently is very clear. It is very clear that bad fruit is bad news. He has condemned those who did not have a personal relationship with him. So who is the wise man in this story? I would say that it is everyone who has entered into a personal relationship with Jesus. The wise man is the one for whom Jesus is truly Lord and Master. The wise man is the one who built his house on the solid ground of a personal relationship with the king. The wise man is the one who puts into practice the teachings of Jesus because he is in God's kingdom. Not to get into it, but because he is in it. So some may ask, is knowing Jesus really the center of the kingdom of God? Consider these words from the Apostle Paul from the book of Ephesians. Let's read together Ephesians 1.17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Could it be any clearer what the top priority is than knowing Jesus? I mean, if you've read the letters of Paul, you know that he is very concerned about all the good doing things, the, the, the transformed lives that we need to be living. But this starts with a knowledge of Jesus, entering into a personal relationship with him. Let's also read together Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Here we see Paul praying again for these Ephesians. He says, and let's read together, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Knowing God. In fact, I find it amazing as Paul is praying for them that they would know this love of God so that they would be filled with what? The fullness of God. Seriously? Human beings filled with the fullness of God? Jesus says, absolutely. It's going to be a work of the Spirit, but there's a relationship that he wants to have with each and every one of us. We aren't doing good things so that we get there, but rather we start with the relationship. We start with Jesus. Now, some may be going, oh, but Paul, he has so many things that he's telling us to do. And that's correct, but not until after chapter 3. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's talking about all the awesome things that God has done to bring us into a personal relationship with us, and he's praying for that personal relationship to be strong. And when we have that established, then he said, here's how you should live your lives. So is knowing Christ the center of God's kingdom? Absolutely. It's not the living out of the faith. It's starting with that relationship, and then that's what comes out of that. It reminds me of the Great Commission. How does the Great Commission go? Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded and then go baptize them. Uh, no. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bring them into the kingdom and then teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. It starts with the relationship. The relationship is first. Obedience is second. I'd like us to close this morning by praying. Praying, first of all, for that relationship, knowing that the obedience will come. But let's focus on that relationship. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to pray Paul's prayer in these last verses. I'm going to pray it for myself personally, but you can then pray it at the same time for you personally. And then once I've done that, we'll pray it again, but we'll Pray it from the Salem perspective, for us as a church, praying for us as, as a church, that we would be filled with this knowledge and love of God so that we overflow to one another and to our community. So I invite you to join me personally as I make this prayer personal for me. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that out of your glorious riches, that you would strengthen me with power through your spirit in my inner being so that Christ may dwell in my heart through faith. I pray that I may be rooted and established in love so that I may have power together with all of your holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that I may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of you. Amen.
Now let's pray this together for Salem. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray at, at Salem that out of your glorious riches that you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our church through faith. And we pray that we would be rooted and established in love so that we may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.